You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Alan Dunn and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalog and listen to past episodes that you may have missed, like our year-end three-hour long debate where all of the co-hosts of the Systematic Investor Series came together to debate some of the key topics that are so vital to understand when it comes to rules-based investing, like trend following. So if you missed those two episodes, I invite you to go back and check it out. As you may know, the aim of the podcast is to inspire you as an investor. We want to be prerogative, but without being polarizing. We want to challenge consensus narratives and to advocate how to think critically about the investing or investing in an uncertain world and to provide you with a framework and a mindset that we believe is truly robust. And if you want to help us achieve our goal, what we ask of you is that if you can comment, if you can continue to send us your questions, if you can share these episodes, and not least, if you can rate and review them in iTunes, we would greatly appreciate this. As this is the way for us to see that you get some value from our time and dedication each week to create these episodes. And as long as that continues, we will continue to do them. So with all of that said, Alan, great to have you on the podcast this week. How are things where you are? How was your holiday? Great. Yeah, good to, good to speak to you, Niels. Uh, things are, are good here. It was a nice break over Christmas. Um, Nice to have a bit of time off, and uh, it's obviously been a very quiet time. Everybody is uh, keeping to themselves very much and not socializing a whole lot. So it was a particularly quiet Christmas this year. Yeah, absolutely. And as I'm sure the listeners can tell, you're coming through from the lovely city of Dublin. I um, I can share that. Now, um, it's great to have you here because you bring a different set of skills and expertise to the series. And... Uh, we will dig into some of that and also to your background in a few minutes, um, and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy that. But before we do, let me just give kind of a brief market wrap or state of where we are, because the new year started off with some fireworks coming out of the Fed, although we probably all expected that Chairman Powell would turn tough when it comes to tapering and rate rises, yet it still managed to get a fair amount of market reaction midweek when the Fed minutes were released. Now, looking at how 2021 ended, there is this idea that markets closed on or around the highs, and I'm thinking about the equity markets here, and that's going to make new highs into uh, 2022. In fact, I think there was 70 new all-time highs in the S&P in 2021. But if you look at some of the data and you take away the top performing stocks from these uh, market numbers, then the NASDAQ, for example, the average distance from a 52-week year, a uh, 52-week high of all stocks in the NASDAQ is about 40%. Yes, 40% below the 52-week high, while the index is only 3 or 4% below its one-year high. And if you do the same for the S&P, the average stock is almost 12% below its one-year uh, high while the S&P 500 itself closed more or less at its high. So you have to ask yourself if all is good as it appears in equity land and what they may tell us about the future, in particular the future without $120 billion of new money from the Fed each month. Of course, the Fed comments also had a reasonable effect on other markets like bonds where we see the 30-year uh, US bond being very close to break below the lows of March 2021, which I think would be a major blow for the bulls uh, if and when it does. The 10-year US notes have already broken through uh, their March 2021 lows. And of course, the shorter maturities, uh, like five-year and two-year notes, have been selling off more or less in a straight line since August of 2021. So I think this may be an indication of what is in store for 2022, where I would not be surprised if we saw significant increases in volatility in many markets and asset classes and where the 60-40 portfolio may come under heavy attack by rising inflation and uncertainty about 
imaginary valuations. But also, Alan, I wanted to bring you in here and just um, kind of hear what, what's on your radar. What are you keeping an eye on uh, these days? I think, as you say, Niels, the comments from the Fed this week were, were very much the key market driver. Um, as you say, I think the Fed has been incrementally moving towards a more hawkish stance. We, we, we got that sense in December with the uh, Powell press conference, but, but it did seem to ratchet up a notch with the release of the minutes. And we saw obviously that uh, reaction in the market. Um, so I think you touched on a few interesting points there. Um, firstly, in relation to bonds, and obviously bond yields have risen over the week. And it does certainly look like a resumption of the trends that we started to see at the start of last year. Um, people will recall the first quarter of last year, we saw a big move up in US bond yields and US bonds had their worst quarter in uh, over, you know, I think going back to 1980. Um, but then for the rest of the year, bonds were pretty much up and down in, in a broad yield or broad range. So, you know, this is kind of a, a real classic case of a long-term trend uh, resuming and, you know, obviously relevant for for the types of managers that, that we were involved with that, uh, you know, people have been speculating for, for a while, you know, is this the, 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 the long-term change in the trend in bond yields? And, you know, arguably we're starting to see that resume uh, again in the last uh, number of days, you know, um, 10-year yields pressing up against that 175 level. So it'll be really interesting to see if we do see this uh, move following through. Um, I think what was really interesting with the Fed uh, minutes was this focus on the balance sheet. You know, everybody's been saying, will the Fed raise rates or not and how quickly? But the other thing that came through was um, this discussion has begun as to not just obviously taper asset purchases, which we all know is underway, but, but also consideration of, you know, reducing the size of the balance sheet at some point in the future. And I think that's really interesting because if you go back to 2018, obviously, you know, we had a series of rate rises and, and equities and risk assets held in pretty well up until the point where you had rate rises and a reduction in the balance sheet, you know, and, and liquidity actually being withdrawn from the market. So I think that's possibly why we saw quite a quite a, a, a big move, you know, you know, a decent sized move, I suppose you would say in markets this week, because uh, uh, markets are now on alert that that's a topic uh, of consideration for the Fed. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Alan. Uh, and also, if people have forgotten about what actually happened in uh, 2018 when they started doing that, what actually happened was that the corporate bond market completely froze. And I don't think there were any new issuance for 41 days. And that just became a massive problem because there are like, I don't know how many times more bonds than there are equities. But uh, I know people think, oh, but Powell went in and he pivoted and he you know, changed it all because equities were down 20%. I actually think he did it because corporate bond market had completely frozen. And um, so good points. Very interesting to see. I'm sure we're going to talk a lot more about this in, in, in the new year uh, for sure. In terms of quick update, sort of year-end update on, on, on the trend-following strategies on our side, our trend-following strategy actually had a pretty strong finish to 2021. But uh, altogether, um, you know, it was um, it was a positive year. We, we're going to come in in the upper range of what I think most uh, managers, larger managers, are going to show for the year, which is either minus five to plus five range. We're in the upper part of that, um, and and so in in that sense, it's fine. But you know, it is a year where performance was below the long term average uh, of of trend following, even though oddly enough, and we'll come to that later the indices of trend followers did actually pretty well. So the composition of those indices are, are probably causing um, that. Um, and in terms of the first few trading days of 2022, I should say we're recording on Friday, so we haven't got the full week yet. Um, but it's been okay, a pretty good start to the new year. My trend barometer have stayed weak uh, in the last few weeks since we did uh, one of these uh, weekly recordings. And it closed yesterday at 36, so still weakish. Um, certainly not an environment where you'd expect strong performance from trend followers. Um, it's certainly the medium-term trend followers, perhaps other timeframes might be doing okay. In terms of our volatility strategy, it also had a positive finish in December to the year, although it did finish down for the year uh, a little bit. But I would say, again, looking at the early numbers that I can see, uh, it did significantly better than some of these uh, well-known long-only volatility strategies, that, which had a really tough year in 2021.
one. Um, I actually think that volatility is going to be a really interesting uh, area to follow in 2022. My own personal expectation is that we're going to see perhaps an explosion in volatility um, during the year, um, but time will tell. Um, for my own trend following strategy, I have to say it finished at a pretty down um, way in 2021. Had a really bad month in December, lost 6.9% and finished flat for the year, down 43 basis points. That was a bit disappointing. So it's kind of in the middle of the range of what I've seen the larger CTAs uh, finish. There are a couple of exceptions, I should say, in fairness. There are a couple of managers I've seen who did really well in 2021. So uh, congratulations to those. Uh, in terms of the division of the different type of models uh, in the strategy, uh, group one models, a classical trend, they were down about 2.28%. Uh, group two um, models uh, in December, I should say, uh, group two models were down 32 basis points and it all kind of got lost in the group three models that were down three uh, sorry 4.31 percent and it's really down to this reversal we saw end of november where a lot of these models got stopped out maybe even got uh, the, the the change direction only to see december uh, resuming some of the longer term trends just to wrap up the year quickly um for the whole year for 2021 the top sectors uh, in my strategy was base metals and energy, and the worst sectors were equities, currencies, followed by precious metals. In terms of single markets for the full year, aluminum, Swiss market index, and zinc made up the top three. And the bottom three, we had DAX, gold, and German bunds. And finally, for those who uh, keep an eye on the risk to stop that I uh, talk about, um, it's down to its lowest level that I've seen, um, I think, in the last 12-14 uh, months. It's down to less than 5%, 4.8% if all um, positions got stopped out. We'll leave it at that and then we're going to move on. Before we get into some of the topics that I want to speak to Alan about, we did get a question in. Actually, we got several questions in over the last few weeks and I think most of them actually are, are more appropriate to discuss with uh, Rich uh, and Rob and Jerry. So today I'm just going to bring up one of them, but I haven't forgotten about the other ones. And that is from Brett. And Brett asks, uh, this is my second question to TTU. And I really appreciate the thorough response I received on the show for my first question. The access the average Joe has to trend following professionals is awesome in this day and age. And I figured... I would ask another question in regards to drawdowns. You have spoken about the annualized volatility and to expect roughly twice that in your future drawdown expectation. And you and other papers and books have mentioned the drawdowns of various CTAs. They all seem to be around 30% give or take. And I was wondering if that is the drawdown for the year or if it's the drawdown from a high watermark. Now, Brett, you go on to explain an example of this, but let me just cut that short and, and say to you, it is the high from the last high watermark. So in your example that you write to me, if you're up 40% during the year and you end the year uh, up 10, you are in a drawdown of approximately 30%. We would calculate that. So we always we don't care about you know annual uh, drawdowns, so to speak. We only care about drawdowns from the last uh, all-time high. So that's what we mean by drawdown. I think, Alan, you could probably agree with that that's right. uh, interpretation of it. So, But thanks for, for the question, Brett, and, and, and keep, keep asking questions, and, and thanks for your support, of course. Now, Alan, since this is your first time on the podcast, and since our listeners will hear a lot more from you going forward, I wanted to spend a little bit of time on your background because it's very different from the, or to the rest of us. And I think this will be a great way to give some context to our conversation today and to all our future conversations. So, so let me just sort of start out by asking a little bit about how, how you know, how did the, the path to, to getting involved in the CTA industry, what did that look like for you? Yeah, it's it's been an interesting journey. I'd say I've been kind of loosely connected with the industry for, for quite a long time in the sense that... Um, you know, I've started off my career in the, in the mid '90s in uh, banking uh, in London. I was involved in FX. I, I had studied economics in 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 college in Trinity College here in Dublin, and uh, you know, as was typical at the time, people got jobs in what was called a milk round, and I went off to to London and uh, did a graduate trainee program and ended up in in foreign exchange. And I, I was sitting on a, on an FX desk. Um, 
doing two things. I was uh, I, I was a technical analyst, so so looking at charts and and obviously technical an- analysis is 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 effectively the underpinning of 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 trend following and and quantitative trading and momentum trading. Um, and but also uh, I, I was trading uh, doing some property proprietary trading. Uh, and I was part of a desk where there was a guy actually running momentum models, and this was uh, in the mid '90s. So I had that immediate kind of um, exposure to um, quantitative trading. Uh, you know, the guys in the desks would would just say, "Oh, the, the models are buying, or the models are selling today." There was never a whole lot more color around it, but it was essentially a, a trend following model. And I used to obviously assess them at the markets from from a technical perspective. Equally, I, I obviously I'd studied economics, so I've always had that dual interest in the the macro and and what's driving markets, and it's it's absolutely fascinating to debate all of that stuff about the Fed and and everything going on in, in the world and and monetary policy and fiscal policy, etc. But when it comes to managing risk and taking positions, I think it's uh, you know the the technical and the, and the quantitative side is really uh, interesting and and has always drawn me. So I've always kind of had that dual interest in in both um, uh, macro uh, uh, trading and and having that macro perspective on asset allocation, but also um, uh, the interest in trend following. So so maybe not quite as much of a purist as some people you know you talk to in the sense that who a lot of people will say it doesn't matter what the fundamentals you just follow the price and 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 that's definitely a valid perspective. Um, with my background, I'm always curious as to the rationale for the for the market drivers and and thinking about. Uh, different scenarios that might play out in the world uh, going forward. So, so as I say, I started off in 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 FX in, in the mid '90s and and worked with the uh, it was it was Bank of America. It was there for a number of years. Was out to Hong Kong, Singapore, back to London um, with with another bank and uh, moved back to Dublin and worked for a macro CTA here in Dublin. And that was uh, quite unusual. Not too many of those in 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 Ireland. Uh, and again, that was. You know, you know, um, looking at uh, futures and FX markets, um, and uh, I was a strategist as part of the team, um, and and again, great experience uh, to be able to do that. Uh, uh, you know, you don't have a, a huge hedge fund community here in in Dublin. I, I worked as um, as head of investments in a, in a private wealth uh, business, and then and then I've joined a, a, a large fund of funds in Dublin, uh, Abbey Capital, which is uh, one of the uh, largest allocators in the in the um, managed future space, so it's so a very much specialists at uh, allocating to CTAs. And I was there for for ten years, a, a managing director, a member of the investment committee. So in my role, involved in all of our manager due diligence efforts. So looking at CTAs and quantitative managers, uh, and and allocating to those managers, and also spent a lot of time, you know. Um, liaising with our clients, uh, trying to explain the strategy and position managed futures and trend following in the context of all multi-asset portfolios, which I think w- when you do that, having the macro background is 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 helpful because the, the, the conversation, the language in the markets is very much macro driven, you know, what's going to happen, what are the macro variables? Um, and, you know, it can be a challenge sometimes to, to, um, translate quantitative trading and systematic trading into that uh, discussion. Um, but but yeah, had 10 years at Abbey, a great experience. Uh, and I know we'll talk about some of the research I, I produced uh, when I was at Abbey. And uh, last year, just, uh, you know, I suppose part of the, the great resignation, you, you might say, I decided it was time for a change for myself. and I left business and I'm about to start my own firm um, called Archive Capital. Um, so again, very much uh, focused on the alternative space. Um, so we'll be offering research and consulting, but also looking to partner with the uh, institutions in the delivery of alternative investment uh, strategies and solutions. So very early days, uh, just uh, literally at the starting point, but but very excited uh, about you know a new chapter for myself. It's so exciting, actually, and it's uh, really exciting for us uh, that you have joined uh, this. Uh, systematic investor series but also um, we can certainly reveal that we're actually going to launch a new series on the podcast called the allocator series where you will be heading that up and um, and through all of your great connections uh, and and so on and so forth we'll have 
some really interesting um, allocators, investors uh, in the alternative space uh, on on that series. So that's going to be exciting. And I think that um, this is a, a dimension that I actually wanted to, uh, for quite a while to add to the uh, to to this series specifically because. We talk a lot about um, what's going on from a pure manager perspective, but we, we definitely need to um, understand uh, better what the investors are thinking about uh, this whole space. So that's going to be super interesting. Now, you mentioned it uh, yourself. And by the way, of course, um, I got to know you through your work at Abbey because you interview, you speak to many managers. So that's another interesting thing. You not only um, you know help people or help allocate money, but you have that insight from speaking to lots of managers, so it's going to be super fun. Now, you mentioned that um, you uh, you wrote a paper, which I actually think is is one of the best papers on trend following that I've seen for many, many years. And I want to start out today uh, by kind of revisiting some of the themes that was in that paper. And, um, and first of all, before we get into that, I, I was kind of interested to, because this was in 2018 from my from my memory, I was kind of interested in finding out what inspired you, uh, and maybe there were other people working on it as well, but what inspired to write the paper in the first place? Um, and, and maybe you should set the framework of what, what, what it was you wanted to achieve with the paper as well. Absolutely. And I, I guess when, when we write research or we think about what's an interesting topic um, to, to, to write about, you're always cognizant of, of what's topical and and what 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 are the themes that are really coming up uh, consistently in conversations when um chatting to investors and you know you might recall 2018 was was a particularly difficult year really across all asset classes it was a tough year in managed futures and trend following i think the SOCGEN uh, trend index which is the one that i i tend to monitor for trend following performance that was down about eight percent and it was, a, I guess, a disappointing year from a trend-following perspective in the sense that it was a year when, 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 when rates rose and, and equity sold off, and often people looked to managed futures and trend-following to deliver performance in those periods, and, and, um, and 2018 wasn't one of those periods. Now, performance was positive in the fourth quarter, if, if I recall correctly, so you did see that um, you know, when you had the big equity down move in December, trend-following and managed futures did deliver in that period. But over the full year, it, performance had been difficult. And it came on the back of, you know, probably a three-year period, 2016, 17, 18, which again had been tough. 2014 had been a very strong year in managed futures and trend following. And Q1 2015, the trends uh, continued in that period. So 2015 was good too. Um, but you'd had, a, you know, a, a tough drawdown period, you know, 2012, 2013, and then you'd had this subsequent period in 20, you know, between 2016 and 2018, which had been difficult. So when you looked at metrics from, you know, whether it was five-year returns or seven-year returns or 10-year returns, performance was starting to look difficult. And, you know, speaking to clients, often the, the you know, the view was, oh, managed futures and trend following has only been up one of the last six years or one of the last seven years. So, so, so something has is broken with the strategy and, um, you know, is it still a viable um, diversifying strategy within a portfolio? So we were getting that a lot. And I think not just uh, concerns about performance, but a narrative was developing in the industry. Uh, you know, what tends to happen is people observe something, they observe good performance or bad performance. And then, okay, it's it's natural for us all to un try and understand it and put forward an explanation or a narrative. And the narrative that emerged was, you know, one, that maybe there was too much money in trend-following assets, you know, that the industry had got too big, you know, and you, you'll recall trend-following and managed futures had done really well in the global financial crisis. And then people obviously came in and invested to the strategy after that really good, good performance. Uh, and we had seen that kind of trend of increased interest, particularly from U.S. institutions over, over the course of the last decade. So, so there was that, that, that concern. But there was also, you know, narratives that maybe markets had changed. You know, markets had become faster, things had sped up, and trend followers were too slow. So they were just weren't nimble enough to, to capture the moves. And that was another comment that, that, that I would frequently get speaking to investors. And then, you know, in this period, we had the growth of um, high-frequency trading as well. You know, stories of a 
some of these firms that made money every single day, you know, not, not, not only over a period of time. And, and they were just really fast, nimble in and out of the markets in, in, in microseconds and milliseconds. And again, people were saying, oh, these guys must be stealing the lunch of, uh, of, of, of kind of slower uh, traders. Um, and the problem with these narratives is they can just appeal to people just um, for, for various reasons. There's not necessarily any um, uh, statistical evidence to support them. But if, if somebody thinks that sounds a compelling explanation, then it's hard to, to, to kind of counter it. So, so what we said was, you know, that there, is, that there are these concerns out there. Maybe we need to look at these uh, topics a bit more systematically and provide actual evidence. You know, is there any data to support these assertions? And if not, you know, what is the explanation for why it had been a more difficult uh, period for, for, for trend following and managed futures in general? So that was, that was really the context. And, and obviously, you know, the, the, there's a whole team of us working on this um, uh, during the period. Um, and w w what we found, and, and I suppose, you know, we, we had a suspicion, you know, when we started the research, that it had been from a market perspective, a difficult period that, you know, when you're working in the managed futures industry, you get a sense that, okay, this has been a good year, because we felt that there has been big moves in markets. And if it's been a tough year, you know, it's been tough, because it's markets have been generally choppy. So we had that in, in, I guess, in the back of our minds. But, but firstly, when, you know, when we looked at those, I suppose. I'm just going to interrupt yeah. here a little bit, Alan, because I want to just share with you a little uh, anecdotal story from that year. We we talk about uh, 2018 being this bad year and and difficult year, but but I want to share that it actually started out like a great year. So I remember. So every year, people may not know this, but every year in in late January, early February, there are these sort of one or two huge industry conferences happening in uh, in Miami. Um, and so a lot of um, managers and, and investors go to them. And I just remember very clearly that January had been a good month. It was a strong month for CTAs. And and February had started out really well as well. And you kind of like a lot of managers were up like 15% already for the year. And, and it all felt really strong. And I just remember as, more or less as soon as that conference started, uh, Volmageddon happened. And we just saw that all that great performance disappear in like two days. Um, so uh, it, um, it it yeah it it definitely is a um, yeah. a period that was that was remembered. And then of course we we kind of um, trends reemerged uh, after I think those twelve days of 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 down equity markets. We actually it didn't it didn't fall that much. But the problem was as we've seen so many times, of course, and that's completely normal. That 2017 was a really strong equity year. So CTAs or trend followers were getting into 2018 fully loaded with equities and all sorts of of correlated uh, positions. Um, so that was the challenge we had, which we will always have when something like that happens, of course. Um, but then, as you rightly said, I mean, over the summer, people got back in line and it all looked okay. And then came um, the next sell-off, the next mini crises, which wasn't as bad performance wise i think you're right you know certainly in december of 18 uh, trend followers start to make money again but of course all these transitions are, are difficult um so i just wanted to give people that um sort of um uh, look behind the scenes a little bit um and then talk about we're going to talk about what 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 you know maybe we can go through some of these points point by point to because i think funnily enough Many of the topics you wrote about in 2018 that people will use to quote unquote criticize trend following, they're the same today. They were probably the same five years earlier or even 10 years earlier. There are certain things that don't change and, and, and some of those points are, uh, are, are those. So uh, why don't you dive into some of them sort of one by one and, and we can, we can chat about it. Yeah, you're right. I mean, and, and just to go back, yeah, I, I remember that. 2018, been at that, you know, conference in my in Miami in January that year, and and all of the talk at the time was about the melt up in markets because I right. I think possibly Jeremy Grantham or somebody had had used that expression that we're about to see a melt up and markets in January behave that way, but then mm. I think it was around the fifth of February, it was possibly an inflation number or something, 
changed the dynamic very very abruptly um and and that was to kind of set the scene for for a, for a difficult um 2018 um but yeah i it, let, let me let me go through some of the points that that that, that i touched on and, and and you're right i i think of 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 all of the points um it was this idea of too much money in the space and that trend following had become crowded you know and i suppose the, the, the idea that if everybody is um you know pursuing the same strategy and and trying to get on um you know trades at the same time that 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 um uh you, you know basically um you know pe people are going to uh, have bad what we would say bad fills in in their execution yeah, because everybody's yeah. putting on the same trades at the same time and that's going to lead to degradation in in performance and and you know it wasn't just that this was uh, been been suggested by um by by clients i mean there were some people in the industry as well who were who were making a, a bit of a shift away from trend following as as a key ingredient in in their strategy so so there was a general theme out there of okay is is there you know is, is trend following going to be as as a successful a strategy going forward so what we did was you know we looked at the industry assets under management uh, data which you can get from um, providers such as Barclay Hedge and and the number that people normally say is you know there's about 350 billion dollars in in kind of trend following slash managed future strategies and if you compare that to to how that has developed over the last you know couple of decades it seems like a very strong growth in in assets but actually, what we did was when we delved in and looked at the numbers, you have to, for one, split that between managers who are pursuing trend following and managers pursuing non-trend strategies. So, you know, non-trend strategies are short-term or systematic macro or FX trading or, you know, um, relative value in commodities, that type of thing. And, you know, it's important to differentiate between the two because obviously managers in the non-trend space are going to have very different positioning than managers in the trend space. So there's no reason to expect that they would have similar positions. So that was the first thing. So that 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 essentially took about half of the assets out. And then the second thing was to look at the the level of volatility that managers were running their assets at. And this this is a an important point because it's not just about the size of the assets that you run. It's at what volatility do you run those assets at? Because if you think about it. If you're going to run your trend following program at 20 vol uh, as opposed to 10 vol, you're basically your position size is going to be double. Um, so your market impact is going to be double as well. So it's important to know, you know, we'll always say in the industry, such a manager is managing, you know, a billion. And we'll say, well, at what vol is that? Because, you know, big difference if they're running a, a billion at 20 vol versus a billion at five vol. So that when when we looked at it and adjusted it for for volatility, we we actually adjusted everything to the median trend follower volatility, which is thirteen percent annualized volatility. What we actually saw was that the um, the, uh, uh, the the trend following AUM was was about one hundred and thirty billion or so, and it wasn't actually it hadn't actually grown that much relative to 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 say where it had been back in two thousand and eight which had been an absolutely fantastic year for, for trend-following strategies. So that seemed to be, you know, a, a point where you would question, well, is this really the problem? And the other aspect that we looked at then was not just, you need to think about, it's not just the size of the assets, but it's the size of the assets and the market impact in the context of how much money is being traded in the markets. And of course, over the course of that period as well, um, we'd seen a huge growth in in the volume and um, open interest in futures uh, trading generally. So if trend following is becoming a smaller percentage over the overall uh, market, then it, you know, it should be having a smaller market impact, not a larger market impact. And that was certainly what we found. Uh, and coupled with that, you know, what we what we had seen with managers is that we're spreading the risk over a larger number of manage, uh, of markets as well. So things like you know, emerging market currencies or there's more, more markets in power trading that were now open open to managers. So so all in all, when you looked at it objectively, there didn't seem to be a strong and compelling case for saying, yeah, that the, the trend following market uh, impact uh, suddenly had grown uh, substantially. Um, so, so we felt that yeah. there was quite strong evidence against that hypothesis.
Yeah, no, I think that's that's very important actually, and I, I just want to add a couple of things to that. Uh, one, by the way, I can share that when I started thirty one or thirty two years ago in this industry, we were less than ten billion, and uh, you know, in 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 total AUM in the whole world of of CTAs. So uh, so it has grown a little bit since back then, but as you rightly say, uh, not to the extent that people uh, actually think. The other thing I remember from the time, um, to some extent, and I think this is also why um, I think the narrative came up, is that, you know, back in the day, banks would always criticize trend following as being sort of a black box and you shouldn't invest in that and so on and so forth. And suddenly, um, you know, a lot of these banks started saying, oh, but trend following, that's just a factor and that's a very easy factor that we can do. We can almost do it for free for you. So I think a lot of people, so there was a lot of money flowing into some of these really cheap products um, and people obviously, uh, I, I don't know if they believed, but they certainly hoped that they would get the same level of performance from buying something that was super cheap. Of course, that didn't pan out. Uh, we know that. And a lot of these cheap um, replicator products has closed since then. Um, but all of that, I think, hyped up this, as you rightly put it, this... this um, narrative oh but it's there's just too much money in trend following um which is kind of a funny thing because uh, to some extent you could say the more people who follow trends the the bigger the trends is going to be um so but anyways um it's good that you were able to um dispel that um notion with pretty convincing data uh, it was one of the things i certainly remembered from from the paper that suddenly there was some evidence we could talk to people about um, about that. What else did you look into in the paper? Yeah, I guess the other issue that, that, that did come up a lot was this idea where you know, were CJs being gamed by other market participants? And and this, again, was something that we were, you know, look, thinking about trying to say, well, how, how would you prove this or disprove this? Um, you know, I think if you think about it, you know, what is the argument here? It seemed to be the argument, okay, we've got this new set of uh, market participants, high-frequency traders, and, and they're obviously making a lot of money. So... They're making a lot of money out of somebody, and maybe it's 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 uh, CGAs that they're they're benefiting at the expense of, um, and and you know obviously high frequency are in and out on both sides of the bid offer spread. It's 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 trading in 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 milliseconds, and um, it's you know it's I guess it's a, it's it's a cost to to transact with them, um, but but you know when we sat down and 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 thought about this from from first principles, it didn't really make a lot of sense from the perspective of. If you're running a trend following system and you get a signal to buy uh, the S&P today, you know, you're typically going to execute your, 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 your number of lots over a period of time. Um, so if you're trying to anticipate, you know, if you're trying to get in ahead of that flow, you're going to have to be willing to, you know, hold that risk for, for pretty much probably throughout the day, as opposed to the, the business model of obviously the high frequency is to be in and out of the market in, in, in milliseconds. So... That that was for, for, for first from first principles. We felt this doesn't sound right. The second thing is that if this was really a problem, where you would see this is in the slippage numbers um, uh, for for the CTAs, because obviously every time you went to deal, the market would be moving away from you, and 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 obviously your cost of execution or your your slippage would be deteriorating over time. And and we weren't seeing that either uh, in terms of the the slippage data we were monitoring from from the underlying CTAs. You know, the general feedback and, and the data we were seeing was, you know, slippage, if anything, was was improving. Uh, and obviously, you know, cost of trading had had improved over time as well. And then we, we tried to take a more of a statistical approach to this as well and said, well, OK, how does it look like on the days when CTAs are trading more frequently, which will generally be the, the tough days, you know, because in, when you get a big reversal in, in the market, CTAs are going to get soft out. Trend followers have to get out of their positions. Uh, and that, and that's going to be the day where the trading volumes are typically going to be higher. So we looked at, we split data uh, for, for, for trend following managers into two periods, basically into two decades, and looked at it was the performance much worse in the second decade on those really bad days, because that might be evidence that, you know, you were seeing some kind of degradation on those bad days when everybody was trying to 
get out of positions relative to the first decade. And again, what we found was was no real difference. The, the bad days were, were not really any worse than they were uh, 10 years ago. So again, you couldn't say there was any real sound statistical uh, evidence to support that idea that, um, you know, that the CTAs were, were somehow being gamed and that their fills and execution uh, was where the problem low. Um, so, so, so that was the second um, that was the second uh, topic. Yeah, and and I think just as, just again putting some some other spin on that, and I can't remember when uh, Stanley Drockenmiller first came out and talked about this, but I think even though people know him as a kind of a global macro guy, I think there's a lot of trend following going on in the way he uh, trades from interviews I've heard him say. And and also how he describes how he gets into trades and stuff like that. And and I remember that he's come out uh, a few times saying, well, one of the things that made it really why he went kind of retired for a while was he felt that when he was getting into positions, there were a lot of these other types of of manage or strategies or investors that were kind of making it difficult for him to, um, you know, when when he was buying a breakout, for example, there's suddenly a lot of pressure being put on like a kind of a mean reversion type um, trade that pushed the prices, um, you know, against these breakouts, so to speak. Um, and so I think also all of that narrative uh, played a part in why people thought that, yeah, these shorter term or high frequency strategies were actually making it really difficult for trend followers to um, to perform as they had done in the past. So uh, that's how I remember it, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, the thing that I found really interesting about it was that there has always been a cost to trade in in mm. markets. So, so this isn't anything new. And, uh, you know, going back to my experience in, in foreign exchange and sitting on the FX desk uh, in the 90s, you know, the CTAs back then would have to call up their uh, FX salesperson and say, give me a price in dollar mark in 20. And the guy would call over to the FX trader and say, you know, dollar mark in 20 and he would quote, you know, a three point spread or a five point spread or whatever it was. And that spread then came down to one point and now it's, you know, it's less than a, you know, a point. Yeah. But so there has always been that cost of trading, whether you're trading with a, you know, a, 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 a an FX market maker or, or if you, you know, back in the day, you had to transmit the order into the futures pit and, uh, and cross the spread there. But the general trend has always been for more compression of those spreads and, um, over, over the last uh, number of years. So again, from that perspective, it didn't seem to, to stack up either. No, I mean, I, I, the way I could kind of understand that it could have, have, have an influence is if you think about managers that use pure stop-based strategies, right, where you could say, well, we get a breakout, we, we, we say we go long, uh, um, you know, crude oil, and then we see a lot of um, shorter-term managers coming in and kind of doing the opposite, right? And it pushes the market down and you get stopped out. I don't think this is really happening. I'm just saying as, as if you're going to visualize um, what could be a problem, that could be a problem, of course. But I, I really, yeah, I, I think people sometimes, and we know that, of course, is they're looking for narratives to explain things. And uh, CTAs are a good uh, victim in, of that because we don't really come out and explain much. Um, so there's no debate uh, if they can get uh, their views in the press. Um, well, who, who, you know, we're not going to argue against them because we know it's not true. But anyways, that's uh, interesting. Um, another interesting observation that you found. What what else did you look at as being sort of uh, the key topical points back then? Yeah. Well, the other point was, and again. This, I think, stemmed from from the experience of the markets in 2018 was, you know, maybe markets have sped up and, you know, CTAs are just too slow to react. And, you know, it's easy to understand where this perspective would come from, because as as you've been saying, we had that, we had Volmageddon in, in yeah, February yes. 2018, which, which was, you know, obviously a big spike in, in the VIX and, um, you know, a sharp sell off in, in equities and then and then a recovery, and then we had another sharp sell-off in equities in, in the fourth quarter. So, you know, you could easily point to very quick market moves in, in the S&P 500. But, you know, the point we were saying is obviously CTAs are trading across tens, or, you know, over 100 different markets in many cases. And, and there's plenty of other markets which are not, ex you know, exhibiting this kind of fast uh, market behavior. So 
again, you know, what other evidence uh, could we point to? Um, you know, well, what we what we had was a set of trained proxy systems as well, which had been developed in house. You know, basic kind of moving average and, and momentum systems. And you know, the point was that if if it was truly the case that markets had sped up in the last number of years, you would have expected faster momentum systems to be suddenly doing a lot better than they were before, because those really fast breakout systems um, w- would work well in in that type of environment. And we weren't seeing that in our trend proxies. And and even more generally in the industry, you know, there is a subset of traders, the short-term systematic traders, um, who are generally, you know, they use a mix of, 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 of momentum and mean reversion. But generally in, in those kind of fast breakout moves, you would expect them to be doing well. We weren't seeing them doing particularly well in the environment either. So again, it, it struck us very much as, you know, um, a narrative that had developed largely influenced by how markets had behaved in, in 2018, um, as opposed to, you know, something that was very sound and, 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 and reflective of how markets were behaving across the board. Yeah, and the interesting thing about that in terms of speed, right, market speed, we of course know now with hindsight that 2020, we saw the fastest um, bear market in history, right? So that certainly goes to the point about speed. And of course, we also know that generally speaking, um, CTAs did okay in 2020. And I've actually, some did really well during March of 2020 uh, when all of this was, was taking place. So, so again, I think that it's nice to, it's nice the fact that you, you, you came to that conclusion, you know, three years ago, but it's actually nice to see that um, I think it's been dispelled. And even if you take, and I know this is only a sample of one, if you look at last year, right, well, the short-term traders index uh, was flat for the year and the trend index, as we're going to talk about later, had a pretty good year, actually. So, so again, but, but the other thing that I remember from the time, and it's still the case for sure, because I think I do hear that still, that, oh, but maybe trend followers are too slow and, and things have changed, is because there was a push, there was a push into short-term managers. I mean, the, that probably became popular in the early 2000s, right? 2005, 2006, the first short-term managers came along and they attracted attention. Again, it was a new great story and um, a lot of AUM flowed that way, but they didn't really make a lot of money. I mean, I've not really come across many, I would say less than a handful of shorter-term managers who have shown consistent ability to make money over time in the range of what a trend follower would make as well. Um, And actually, when you then drill down to some of their returns, you find that they do have some longer-term trend following models in that, although they classify themselves as shorter term because they have that as well. So it is hard to, I think, say definitively that that um, you should be short term uh, if you look at the evidence, at least. Uh, it's certainly not an evidence. I mean, we look at it at, at done um, where we run some simulations as well to see which time frames have been the better over, uh, you know, for each calendar year. And it is very, very rare we have a calendar year that comes out and say, oh, yeah, 29 days was the best time frame. Or, 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 I mean, we go down to 20 days. We don't go anything below that. But it's very rare it happens. For the most part, it's much, much longer time frames. So interesting stuff. Yeah. And I guess um, when we looked at this, you know, for what, so, you know, if, if we've, we've kind of said, these are the things that we don't think uh, are, are, are accounting for the right. performance. So that, that it then begs the question: Well, well, what is the you know what is the reason for for um, more challenging performance? And um, you know, we always say you know, well, why has it been a more difficult period? Well, there haven't been as many trends, and people say, oh, sure, there's been trends. Sure, look look at that market or this market, and the, you know, so so the, the the challenge with that is is producing a more objective measure of the environment and. I know you have your, your your trend barometer, and that's that's in that kind of uh, philosophy of trying to put a number on is are we in a good environment? But um, it, it's it's not an easy thing to do to come up with an easy you know single number to say it's a good environment for 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 trend following or or a bad environment for trend following. But I guess you know if you were to think about it from from first principles, you know in what type of environment would you expect trend following to be doing well from a market perspective? Well. 
you know, certainly a, an environment where you get bigger moves in markets that 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 would seem to be a better, you know, a better environment, uh, an environment where you have trends that are sustained over a long period of time. Well, again, that's going to be a better market environment than, you know, a market environment characterized by, you know, up one week, down another week. And if you go back to, you know, if you go back to the 2012, 2013 period, which was a tough couple of years for trend following, what you had in that period was this concept of risk on, risk off. You know, it mm. was, you know, uh, the markets were very heavily influenced by the European debt crisis at that point. And, you know, one month you'd have a an agreement, you know, out of Europe and a week week later it seemed to be all off and a week later it was all on again. And everything seemed to be traded risk on, risk off. And obviously that was a difficult environment. So we wanted to think about, well, how would you, you know, what, what kind of indicators could show this more quantitatively. So we came up with a set of different indicators illustrating, I guess, different aspects of trend following. You know, so at a very at a very basic level, you know, you can look across all of the futures markets and just look at the average risk adjusted change across each of of the markets. Mm-hmm. So when I say risk adjusted, the volatility adjusted change. And and actually that that, you know, when if you just plotted that on a year by year basis versus the performance of of um, of trend following. You, you you do see a, a positive relationship, and and again in 2018 you saw a, you know a really low average change across markets, um, and then taking that concept a step further, we said well, well let's look at the number of markets that have been experiencing a one standard deviation move over the last mm-hmm. year, uh, and plot that over time, and that was a very very informative to see that when we went through that that decade. Uh, for much of it, the, the number of markets that were experiencing a one standard deviation move over the past year had fallen down to down to I think it was it was down to one market out of fifty five at the end of wow. uh, twenty eighteen. So markets had experienced moved within that, but but in terms of a, an you know an overall uh, one standard deviation move over the period, it, it, there had been you know increasingly fewer markets experiencing that level of of market movement. So that was the second indicator that we had. Um, to kind of assess, you know, the, the, what we would call the trendiness of markets. And then we looked at things like the, you know, the uh, uh, percentage of, of markets in a trend over time. Uh, and the way we did this was we said, for every market, we'll characterize or categorize it as either being in a trend or in a consolidation or a reversal by looking at the price relative to, to moving averages. So if the price is moving up and above the 20-day and above the 120-day moving average, that's an uptrend and the opposite for a downtrend. And if the price starts breaking below the moving average, it's into a consolidation phase. So literally just counting up the number of markets in any given point in time that are in a trend uh, versus the markets that are in, in that are consolidating. And again, if you plot that over time, it tends to show you, well, what it showed very clearly was that the percentage of time trending was less in that decade relative to, to the previous two, two decades. Um, the other indicators that we looked at was... Um, the, the average length of trend. And then we also developed a, an indicator called um, trend efficiency or directional efficiency. And that was basically, you know, taking the uh, Perry Kaufman um, uh, uh, efficiency measure and adjusting it for the kind of performance of a trend following system. So it's effectively measuring the percentage of price movement that was within the direction of the trend in a, in a period of time. Because obviously, you know, you know, the, the perfect scenario is, you know, is if the market moves in one direction, but 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 also that it moves in that direction every day. So, you know, if, mm-hmm. if the market moves up 10%, but it's up 8% one, one day, down 7 up 8 again, you know, that's a really choppy move. That's not going to be as favorable for a trend follower as if the market is consistently going the same direction. So that was the idea behind it of looking at, the, the, you know, the trendiness of the of the market. And again, that, that indicator correlated with 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 uh, performance and uh, indicated that again uh, the 2010s that whole decade had been more difficult uh, from 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 a trend following prefer- perspective so it was interesting none of these indicators by them, by themselves were very highly correlated you couldn't look at one and say yes that's that that that's clearly the one indicator that tells you um how well trend following should be doing but it was interesting that when you looked across all of the indicators that they were all giving an indication that the 2010s from multiple perspectives were looking like they had been a more difficult year or decade from trend following um, in terms of that market environment. I 
I think that's, I mean, I think it's fascinating. and It's really a time, timeless study, right? Or at least the methodologies and, uh, and and may 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 maybe it's something that you uh, might to uh, might want to revisit and update and see if it still holds true now that we've had a couple of again different environments uh in in the last uh, few years um but uh, yeah no absolutely fantastic anything else you want to say about the study before maybe we can uh, maybe we can uh, jump into one or two other topics before we uh, close out for, for for this week yeah i mean i suppose the other question that that we that 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 we got a lot, and this comes back then to the whole point about the macro versus the versus the quantitative. Then the question is, mm-hmm. well, why was that the case? You know, and uh, uh, why what was it about the market environment in that period that produced an environment where we were seeing fewer big moves and fewer mm-hmm. sustained trends? And you know, and and it's an open question, really. You know, and and we put forward our 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 views on this, and and my sense was. You know, we one thing that actually, when I look back, I, I had a look back at the paper, um, you know, yesterday just, just to refresh my memory. <laughs> but one thing that really stands out is that, you know, if you look at quarterly GDP growth in the US going back over over 30 years now, you know, in the 2010 decade, there was no there was no uh, recession in the US and there was no boom on a quarterly kind of annualized basis. Um, GDP growth was between minus 1%, 1.1 and plus 5.5. So if you think about that relative to what we've already seen this decade, where we've had uh, an enormous, uh, the sharpest, uh, you know, recession on record in annualized terms, obviously not a very long recession with the coronavirus, but the sharpest in terms of the uh, annualized contraction. And then the massive uh, V-shaped boom. Uh, And one of the the points we, we pointed to at the time was that there wasn't this big um you know uh, amplitude in 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 the economic cycle in in that whole decade and obviously that's important because if you go from really weak growth to really strong growth that influences all of the assets that are are influenced by the economic cycle so things like copper and crude oil and and obviously we've seen it with crude oil going from negative uh, in the futures markets in um 2020 to 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 be back up to you know back up to mid 80s um yeah so, so, so that's you know we've seen it in copper, we've seen it across the the, the commodities. So, you know, um, people tend to, you know, I say people, I say we all have a natural tendency to extrapolate what we're experiencing at at a given point in time, and 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 what we had seen in that decade was low inflation, a lot of quantitative easing, um, which you know, arguably was suppressing market volatility, um. Not a not a lot of variability in GDP. It was just a slow and steady, you know, this hypothesis of secular stagnation and uh, a lot of quantitative easing, which was compressing risk premia. Um, so we felt that, you know, and, and also low interest rates across the whole world. You know, yeah. historically, that was always a good opportunity for, for trend followers that you would get trends in interest rates and you would get diverging economic cycles. So you might have you know, rates going up in, in the US, but 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 not in Europe. And, and that kind of divergence could create opportunities. So um, we felt that that decade was was very, you know, interesting and unique and may not be representative of what we might experience in the next decade. And, you know, I remember reading at the time, Ray Dalio had produced some research on a similar theme, you know, looking at, you know, different narratives that had been that you intended to see in markets going back over the last decades. And what you tend to see is you have a particular dynamic in 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 one decade, and the market tends to adjust to that. But by by virtue of that adjustment, it sows the seeds for for a different set of conditions that then tend to play out in in the next decade. You know, people because of the low vol, people then end up taking on too much risk, uh, and you get you know the possibility of of, of a Minsky moment and and and, a, and an explosion of volatility. Which we we kind of did to, to an extent in in the sense that uh, you know in Q1 2020, but again obviously the Fed stepped in again to to circumvent uh, any issues, particularly on on the corporate bond side. But 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 it's, it is interesting now when you look back some of the things, you know that we hypothesized about where we you know possibly seen more fiscal policy, which we have seen seen possibly seen higher inflation and possibly seen you know random events. We were talking about wars and droughts, but we. 
we'd forgotten about pandemics, but you'd certainly put pandemics <laughs> into that category of of random events. And I think all of those are part of the reason we've seen better performance um, come through. Literally, since we we wrote that paper, 2019 was a good year, driven more by the fixed income side. But 2020 and 2021 have all been positive years for 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 uh, trend followers. Yeah, indeed. Um, and uh, I think the other thing also um, when thinking about that decade, which was, I mean, again, some managers actually over the decade did okay. Um, but of course, when you look at the indices as a whole, um, a lot of that get offset by managers not doing so well. And therefore, they, they tend, tend to have been pretty flat for, for that decade, which of course, I mean, let's not forget equity markets were completely flat for the first 10 years of, of the 2000s, right, in terms of performance. But people never talk about that period. Uh, some of those equities have only recently made it out of their drawdown in the last couple of years. So, uh, And some are still in a drawdown since 2000, some of the uh, southern European indices, uh, as far as I remember. Um, but I think the other thing for that decade that stands out to me is that that FX rates, have been pretty stable. Um, and I, if I look at um, return distribution or attribution of, of uh, trend-following strategies, including the ones I work with, FX has been one of the worst sectors, most difficult sectors for the last 15 years or so, which is, again, not that normal, but central banks and policymakers have been successful in keeping that um, pretty tight. Um, and and I agree with you if if that is what you said, but I I certainly feel that we're coming to a point where you know they've done as much as they could in keeping things together, but now we're getting to that moment where you know how, how do you, how do you back out of of uh, you know zero interest rates without it causing some kind of upset? Um, I mean, just the Fed minutes this week is a good indication that. Uh, that there's going to be trouble, um, you know, when when you when you see things like that, and and let's just let's just wait and see when the actual action happens, what what the markets will do. But on top of all of that, I think there are two things that I've seen uh, people talk about that um, leads to better p- conditions uh, for trend following. Uh, one of them we we can see in our own track record at done, you know, 47 years, we've traded through periods of inflation. So we know that inflationary periods have tended to do uh, to be really good for for uh, trend following. Um, but um, the other thing, um, and I yeah, the other thing is, is actually real interest rates. So interest rates adjusted for inflation. And what I've seen some people uh, comment on is that uh, when they get to the extreme, so either extremely negative, like they are now, I think they're as negative as they were in the 1970s, or extreme positive, that's also periods where uh, you see uh, really good opportunities for trend followers. So I'm optimistic, which obviously I'm every year when the year starts, um, but I am optimistic that we're going to have big moves. Now, whether we can catch them or not, that is a different story, um, because clearly last year, some of the transitions uh, you saw in currencies uh, from, um, you know, a, a short dollar position initially of the year and then ending the year on a, on a, on a long dollar, that's, that's a transition that takes a while for trend followers to, uh, to, to capture. Um, and the other one has been fixed income. Um, getting into 2020, uh, or sorry, 2021 on the long side and then shifting to the short side only to see the markets bounce for quite a few months before starting to sell off in in around August September time, again difficult um, environment. So, um, but um, as I said, I'm optimistic. Alan, there are so many things we need to talk about just in the few a few bullet points that we uh, we plan for today. But I think we need to give it more time and justice to uh, to dive into this. This was very specific where we could go and revisit that paper from 2018. I think that was a a great way to uh, kick off the new year. Um, So let's keep the other uh, topics for for next time. Uh, You're back on on this um, series. And then, of course, yeah, there'll be, I'm sure, many more things to talk about at that time. Today, I'm just going to talk about performance as of the end of the year. So I'm not going to talk about the first few days of uh, 2022. But the beta 50 index, as we've already talked about, actually finished the year pretty well, up almost 1% and up 10.16% in 2021. 
SockGen CTA index up 67 basis points in December, up 6.5% in 2021. And the SockGen trend index up almost 1% in December, up 9.61% in uh, 2021. And that's actually beat um, the last two years. It's even better than 2019, which was another strong year for the uh, SG trend index. Short-term traders index, we already talked about it. It was down almost 1% in December and it finished the year completely flat. Um, and in terms of the uh, traditional markets, I guess, uh, MSCI World Equity Index had a strong year, up 20%. And the World Government Bond Index, on the other hand, were down 2.6% or 2.59%. Next week, I'm joined by Mark. So make sure you send in your questions for upcoming for him and for upcoming episodes in general. And uh, as always, you can email them to info at toptradersonplug.com and we'll do our best to answer them as well as the backlog that I mentioned that we have lined up. If you have time, feel free to go and rate and review the podcast. It certainly would be a great start for us to see more reviews coming in. With that said, from Alan and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.